We're about to talk about apples. No, not Steve Jobs. Actual apple apples. And if I say the pink lady, I hope you think of an apple because every one of the pink ladies anywhere in the world, and they're very popular, can trace its origins to the orchard of one Maud Williams, a.k.a. Lady Williams in Western Australia. Now, Maud is one of many women in agriculture whose stories are underappreciated and uh, certainly underdocumented, but the Maud Williams story is now getting some attention in a podcast which we'll uh, mention later and in an article on the Conversation website. The author of said article is Susan Broomhall. Susan is Professor of History at the Australian Catholic University and she joins us from Perth, where she's based. Now, Susan, before we get on to the Pink Lady, we need to talk about the Lady Williams apple, which some listeners may not be so familiar with, and I want you to tell me about a particular apple tree which, heavens above, is registered by the National Trust. Well, thanks very much for having me, and it's a great pleasure to be telling you more about the Lady Williams. Um, It's a very important tree. It's the origin of a very large part of the Australian agricultural export industry. And, in fact, many of the apples that you would see in supermarkets today have the Lady Williams as a parent variety built into them. So every time you're eating a sundowner, a pink lady or a bravo apple, you're eating a little bit of Lady Williams heritage. And that tree, that chance seedling that popped up on a property down in Donnybrook, which is in the southwest of Western Australia, which is classic orchard country, remarkably produced this great global industry for Australia. It lives on the Baronia farm and is on the register of the National Trust. Indeed, and as it should be. But I think even so, it is registered on the National Trust, but very few people know its story. And so that was part of the work that we did in this project. So to be absolutely clear, every pink lady or sundowner apple that anyone bites into anywhere in the world, every one of them will have the DNA of the apples from that one tree in WA. Absolutely. They all share DNA with that one tree, which makes it pretty critical. So what, what is it that's so special about that tree that makes it the, the parent of all those new varieties that we know in our supermarkets? Maybe your listeners aren't aware of what a Lady Williams looks like because we don't see that one so often in our supermarkets. It's a very beautiful apple. It's a bright red. It is lovely and crisp, very tasty, and it has long storage properties, which is partly what made it so attractive for the export apple industry. Susan, introduce us to Maud Williams, not an aristocratic lady. We're too democratic for that. Absolutely not. But it was a real name that she had and was given. So Maud Williams and her husband Arthur ran an orchard property down at Donnybrook in the southwest of Western Australia. And they worked on that farm from the 30s through the 50s, 60s. And it happened that amongst the various trees, one chance seedling popped up next to the tank stand by the house. So a very inconvenient location and one which uh, Maud's husband and and sons wished to remove. Various times they tried to get rid of this tree, tried to cut it down. And on each occasion, Maud said, no, no, hang on. That tree is producing some very interesting apples. I haven't seen apples like that before. Don't chop it down. Let's see where it goes. And so on a number of occasions, her sons really tried to rip this tree out of the ground and Maud bandaged it back up 
and protected it and cared for it until it was clear that this was a, a new and distinctive kind of apple and one that had real qualities that could be of benefit in the agricultural industries of you know, Australia in the 1950s when they were trying to develop the export market to the UK. Talking to Susan Broomhall. Now, she was a woman who was, well, shall we say curious about matters botanic because she wasn't content with roses and petunias. She also grew fajoas and hydrangeas. That's right. Look, working on a farm at this time is pretty hard labour of everybody involved in the family. But Maud seems to have had a particular interest in botany and was ordering all sorts of interesting seedlings through catalogues and had a long set of clippings and cuttings about different kinds of plants. So she was somebody who was naturally interested in the botanical world. And it was her instinct that this was something different, something that had something to offer the industry that was so important at the beginning of this story. So she well deserves to have her name applied, doesn't she? Absolutely. And in fact, the name Lady Williams comes from the local area too. This is part of the same local history. On a neighbouring property, on a neighbouring farm, was a little girl at the time called Lynette Green. And she used to trundle over to the property, as people did in the time, you know, walking between the houses. And her nickname for Maud was Lady Williams. And so that's how the apple has this name. It comes from Lynette Green on the neighbouring property. It's a lovely little story of, of different ways in which women have been involved in, in the agricultural industry and in ways that perhaps haven't been recognised in the past. Susan, how did that original tree happen? <laughs> well, apples have some pretty interesting properties, and one of which is that, that if you put a seed in the ground, you probably won't get the apple that you were just eating being produced by it. Apples produce all sorts of kind of weird and wonderful variations all the time. It's one of their interesting properties. And so chance seedlings, which is what you call it when, you know, a new tree suddenly should pop up, chance seedlings happen all the time with apples. It's not an uncommon kind of occurrence. But one of the things I would say is that um, it's not just a matter of saying, oh, a chance seedling popped up. Now it's a new variety in the supermarket. There are many, many chance seedlings that occur. Most of them go probably completely unnoticed or they're on the side of a road or somewhere where they don't have any impact. But when one pops up and somebody takes the time to recognise it, cultivate it, nurture it, develop it for the market, that's where we start to look at agricultural innovation. And you consider it was, it's likely that uh, one of the parent cultivars were Granny Smiths. <laughs> Indeed. So it seems likely that the parents of the Lady William are Granny Smith, which shares some of the same properties and characteristics, and the Rokewood, which is, again, another variety we don't see so much these days. Granny Smith, of course, is another one of the great Australian success stories of the apple and orchard industry. I've got to ask you this. Was there a real Granny Smith? <laughs> there was indeed. Maria Ann Smith was a woman who was born in England in 1799, migrated out to Australia with her family, her husband and children. I think she arrived in Sydney in 1838. And they set up a property on what was then the kind of orchard country of Ryde, which is now, of course, pretty much in Sydney, but then was on the outskirts. And it's sort of quite a similar story. It's a story that is built around Maria, granny, let's call her granny, finding this chance seedling on her property, recognising that this was a different kind of apple to any of the other varieties that were then being grown, and developing it. 
And what's so great about the Granny Smith? Same kind of properties. A really lovely texture, a kind of hard-wearing apple. It's pretty hard to dent. It's why you always get them in lunchboxes when you were a kid, or at least I did. <laughs> and it's, it's long-lasting, and that's its real property. It's such a long-lasting storage apple. You can, you know, put it in a crate in, in Sydney and get it to London, and it's pretty much in good condition at the other end. And that was a massive asset at the turn of the century. But back to Maud. You need people who make the necessary investment of care, of time and of funding, don't you? Absolutely. And I think this is one of the challenges in trying to to develop the story of women's roles in agriculture, innovation in particular, because often they don't have the finances attached to their name. They don't have the institutional reputation and records around them. So trying to find the ways that they've been involved in development, sometimes we have to think about development a little differently. And as I've been saying, Maud's story is partly about care. It's partly about recognition, but it's also about care and nurture. And we have to listen out for these stories in some different places. So Maud's history, in a way, it's right there in front of us in the name of the apple, but it's actually also quite tricky to find it in sort of institutional records. Um, her story has, at least as I've found it, has come through oral history from the local community of finding the people who, who knew Maud and could tell us about what she had done. Now, tell me about the evolution of the pink lady out of the Lady Williams. So in the early 1970s, Manjimup Research Centre, which is again down south near Donnybrook, it has a research centre for horticultural production. And they took the Lady Williams into the research centre and started to see what they could test it with, what they could breed it with to produce some new apple varieties. And this was a program that was run by John Cripps, who's most famously associated with the Pink Lady this was a pretty laborious kind of undertaking. You have to, you know, create multiple, multiple varieties, like thousands of trees before you come up with something that really suited well, what they needed. Well, you cite the figure of 100,000 experimental <laughs> seedlings. It's massive. And each of those had to be like hand propagated. It's really kind of careful work. And um, John Cripps mentioned in an interview that he once gave that he really valued the work of women technicians who had the careful hands and the patience to do that kind of work. And out of those 100,000 trees was one that we now know as the Pink Lady. And, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful apple. Of course, people's tastes have perhaps gone towards these sweeter kinds of varieties. And it's had great success because it's, it's got a taste that people like. It's a lovely, attractive color. And, of course, it, it shares these same properties of long storage, you know, hard-wearing kind of qualities that we've seen through the Granny Smith and the Lady Williams. And I learned from you it was the first apple variety ever to be trademarked. Indeed, indeed. Isn't that remarkable? It just takes us into a whole other kind of commercial realm, doesn't it? So indeed, every time you see Pink Lady, it should have its little trademark sign next to it. Does the Cripps name live on as well? I think the official name of the variety is Cripps Pink, and it was John who gave it its name, Pink Lady. Um, he was a pretty well-known figure in, in the WA horticultural industry, well-recognised for his contribution through the Pink Lady and Sundowner. But his name is not really, you know, supermarketly known, if that makes sense now. We would know it through the Pink Lady. Let's go back to Maria Ann Smith, a.k.a. Granny, born in Sussex <laughs> in England. Indeed. Um, so this is a really interesting story, and it's something that I've just started to work on further. Having done some work on Maud Williams, I wanted to go back and say, well, you know, what do we really know about Granny Smith and what she was up to? And one of the places I found so interesting to work on 
is in the 1930s, there was a campaign in the local community to build a memorial to Granny Smith. And everyone seemed to think this was a good idea. There's a lot of newspaper coverage of how there's going to be a memorial built to Granny Smith. She's so important to the development of this apple that it's been so important for the state of New South Wales. And then what emerges is a whole discussion in the newspapers about, well, what is it she actually did? And I suppose what I'm interested in as a historian of women's history is not just what it was that women did in agriculture, but also how it's been represented. And here, what is so interesting is that people, as I said, sort of felt she'd done something, but they really couldn't agree on what it was she'd done. And I think in all the different suggestions of whether she was a market gardener, whether she'd bred this seed, whether she'd found it and had to consult the neighbours to have them tell her it was a good tree, they all reflect different kinds of understandings about what women could do in agriculture at the time. I'm all in favour of getting a, a sort of a monument of some sort, but of course her monument is the apple itself. Well, that's true. And I'm not sure, I still haven't been able to work out if a monument was actually ever made. I mean, the 1930s, the early 30s, was a terrible time to be trying to raise funds to build a monument to a woman in agriculture. So I haven't yet been able to work out if it exists, but I'm sure I'll find that shortly. But at the moment, I'm just intrigued by these different stories that have come out. And I mean, one of which is that, well, she's a widow working on the property with her sons. That's completely not true. She passes away before her husband. He's well and truly alive um, at the time she's on the, working on the orchard. But that's a good example of how people couldn't conceptualise in the 30s, this is, that she could possibly be running the orchard if she still had a husband who was alive. You come to this it. as a researcher on gender and women's history, don't you? Yes, indeed. And one of the topics that I've been interested in for the for last couple of years is about women's contribution to agricultural innovation. So we've had projects, really important projects, that have highlighted women's work on farms. And there's a very important project called the Invisible Farmers Project, which tried to highlight all the ways in which women have worked on farms, have participated in farming activities. And so my project has been about, what about innovation? If we look strictly at kind of contributions to agricultural change and development, how do we see women in that picture? And I've looked across Europe uh, as well as Australia. And, you, you know, you start to see patterns in the way people think about what women could do, how they could be innovators. Can they be entrepreneurial? Um, and it's really fascinating and slightly sad to see these same patterns of assumptions about women repeated from 1600 right through to the story of Maud Williams. Well, as it happens, I'm married to a woman farmer whose <laughs> passions are for garlic and, uh, and olives. But you're right. <laughs> The contribution of women to agriculture in Australia is underrated and understated. Absolutely. And, you know, again, this comes back to sometimes institutional structures don't help us to see women at the time and to find them in the archives. So um, perhaps your listeners will be a little surprised to know that in the Australian census forms, it was pretty challenging and women were highly dissuaded by the structure of the census form not to represent themselves as farmers. So if you ticked you know, that you were a woman, then the kinds of occupational options that were there for you to tick did not include the word farmer. So the form itself is shaping whether you can represent yourself for that kind of activity. So we do actually find some censuses, um, this is up to 1994, I should add, so it's quite late that this change occurs. We do see some women in the census actually writing themselves down as farmer, and the only way I can see that it might have happened is that they basically subverted the form <laughs> and ignored the categories to insist upon it, which is interesting again in its own right. 
Susan, I think you deserve an apple named after you. <laughs> I really do. I shall talk to the authorities as I've been talking to Professor Susan Broomhall. And I thank you for enlightening us. I had no idea that Australia and Western Australia in particular had made such a contribution to the world's apple eating. As I said, Susan is an historian at the Australian Catholic University. Her article is on the Conversation website and Susan is also in a new podcast that's been made for the West Australian State Library, freely available on their website. It's called She'll Be Apples and what an appropriate title. Good on you, Susan. Thanks so much for having me. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.